0: Hi everyone, Eric here. Before we get to our discussion with Professor Jonathan Fulton from Zayed University to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the BRI, I really want to encourage you to become an all access subscriber to the China Africa Project. Your subscription will get you our daily email newsletter, the same one that goes out to folks at the State Department, the UN, World Bank, and so many other influential organizations. Plus, you'll get unlimited access to the China Africa Project's exclusive analysis that's just for subscribers only. All you have to do is go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We also offer a half-off rate for all students and faculty. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from sub-China. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the Senior China-Africa Researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about the Belt and Road, and it's been a long time since we've had a conversation about BRI, and in the midst of all the COVID-19 drama The crisis, the outbreak, all the different things that are going on. BRI, in some ways, uh, seems to have gotten lost in all of this, but yet it's still very, very important. Let me just kind of bring everybody up to speed on Belt and Road and where we are, because again, it has been a long time and it has moved a lot lower in the news ranking of stories. Uh, This is again, 70 countries are involved or part of this. About 67, I think we'll get the exact number, 67, 68 countries are now in it. Last April, at the second BRI uh, summit in uh, China, uh, Xi Jinping had to kind of get in there to right the ship because in so many ways, people had felt that the BRI kind of went off course. It it was bloated, there was no direction to it, it was accused of lack of transparency, corruption, and building what Xi Jinping called uh, vanity projects. And so he vowed to crack down. What we saw after that summit in April is then renewed interest from the Chinese side to invest more in BRI. BRI investments, generally speaking, fall into three big sectors. Energy, which has about $92, $93 billion. Metals, uh, and most of that metals investment is coming out of Peru and Chile. Uh, Transportation is a big one. And then increasingly, telecommunications. Now, Cobus, we're coming today, and when we recorded, this is the beginning of the week, uh, oil fell here in Asia trading right at the start, 31% on the open We're looking at situations in Africa today where economies where you are in South Africa are in recession. Nigeria will probably go into recession. Same for Kenya. Uh, Private sector activity in Egypt is declining. And what we're seeing is the intersection of a lot of the BRI investment running headlong into uh, the crisis that is unfolding in African economies, talk to us a little bit about what you 're seeing on the ground, CObus in terms of the economic picture, and let 's try and loop that together with BRI.
2: Well BRI is of course all about connectivity um, that you know they, they, the, the standard way of talking about the the BRI in the Chinese government is in terms of five connectivities. Um, and, you know, those include everything from, from infrastructure to, to business and trade to people-to-people exchange. Um, now, of course, um, connectivity isn't looking so good, um, right? Immediately, um, and the I think what we now see is the flip side of, of this kind of this idea of, of continuous connectivity, which is just contagion across you know across borders. Not only contagion of the actual virus, but also contagion of economic crisis. Um, in Africa, you know, Africa is being is being hit particularly hard um, because a country like Nigeria is so dependent on raw mineral exports, raw uh, oil exports. Um, you know, South Africa is similar, similarly very dependent on raw mineral exports. Um, and so it's th- that is also, that is hitting the South African economy. It's also hitting the South African fresh produce trade. So South Africa is a big exporter of, of citrus, grapes and so on to China. Um, that is also being, being really kind of badly affected by, by the current crisis as, as both, um, production slumps in China, so they don't need raw materials, but also demand slumps in China as well. Um, so I think all, all in all, you know, Africa is essentially kind of sitting and waiting. Um, you know, seeing how the crisis is gonna is gonna escalate on the ground, but then also s- trying to work out exactly how to kind of hedge itself against all of this economic fallout.
0: Well, we wanted to get a an insider's view on this and the big picture as to how BRI is, is being transformed or influenced by the events on the ground, influenced by uh, COVID-19. The best person to do that with is Jonathan Fulton, who is an assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Bear with me. He's got a little bit of a long introduction here because there's a lot going on. He's also the author of uh, China's Relations with the Gulf Monarchies. And he has a new book coming out this year on how the Belt and Road Initiative is influencing international politics in regions across Eurasia and the Horn of Africa. And then next year, he's got another book coming out, The Routledge Handbook of China-Middle East Relations. Last year also, his name might sound familiar to our regular listeners, he co-wrote a fascinating paper for the European Council on Foreign Relations called China's Great Game in the Middle East. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because we interviewed the paper's project editor, Camille Lons, and if you haven't heard that discussion, I highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to it, because much of what Camille said will be relevant to our discussion today. Okay, Jonathan, wow, that was a big introduction. I, I bet you get that a lot, but we're uh, we're finally ready to go. Welcome to the program.
3: Thanks, guys, and yeah. I actually don't get that a lot, so thanks, That's that's, uh, that's that's a nice introduction.
0: Just wanted to kind of really position you as someone who's sitting in the middle of looking at the BRI, And obviously, you are located in the United Arab Arab Emirates, so the oil situation is also something that is is very pertinent to where where you're looking at from. We talked a little bit about in the introduction here uh, what's happening on the ground in Africa, that the BRI was all about, as Kobus said, connectivity. Connectivity today in this context looks to be a liability. Store shelves in Africa and other parts of around the world are running low on products because the ships just are not sailing out of Chinese ports. Uh, There is discrimination now against Chinese workers in various parts of the world because they're fearful of contracting the virus. Uh, We're talking about now the Chinese economy has been brought to its knees effectively because of this, so outbound spending may go down. The list of implications on the Belt and Road is probably endless. Talk to us a little bit about what you're thinking about when you're reading all of these different events unfold related to coronavirus and how you think it's going to impact China's broader Belt and Road Initiative.
3: Well, thanks, it's interesting. I like the point that that you both have have underscored that this is about connectivity. Um, And and typically we look at that as a positive, right? I mean, this is is bringing people and cultures and, and markets together. Um, but here in the Gulf, what we've seen for the past couple of months is, is kind of the the riskier side of that. And uh, especially in the Gulf, we see a lot of um, sensitivity and vulnerability. You know the Gulf states, all of their biggest trading partners, all of uh, China's their biggest trading partner for each of the Gulf states or or among the top two or three. And uh, in some cases, you know for the for the past few years that's been a tremendous opportunity. You see just so much growth. You mentioned energy uh, with the Saudi, Uh, China relationship, energy has been a massive part of the trade relations. Um, And with prices dropping the way it has been, and with uh, Saudi's economy being quite uh, vulnerable to market shifts, uh, this this kind of looks like a a big danger for them. Um, Oman is another really vulnerable country because uh, Oman's exports, I think last year or the year before, was just under 50% or under 45% of their exports went to China. And when you've got these states that uh, something like eighty-five to ninety percent of their government uh, budgets are based on ex- uh, energy exports, that's a really big vulnerability. So uh, what you see is is for for energy places like the, um, Oman and, and Saudi are, uh, are are quite exposed to Chinese downturns, and then you just look more generally um, at the non-energy side of things. You know. Uh, Dubai, for example, uh, I, I think I had three events this month in Dubai that have been canceled, uh, conferences and, and forums. Um, the the hospitality industry and the UAE's uh, been hit pretty hard already this year. And uh, with the with drop in tourism, they had something like a million Chinese tourists to Dubai last year alone. But with, with all of those people off the, the board, this is a big hit to their economy. Dubai has the... Um, The World Expo coming up later this year, too. So there's a lot of stuff going on just beyond the energy, you know, uh, pilgrimages to Saudi being uh, closed as well. So there's a lot of economic uh, downturns related to this. Um,
2: Jonathan, how how do you see this impacting on the future of the BRI as a whole? I mean, it's a very big question, but, you know, kind of the fact that that China's economy has as uh, slowed down so significantly, um, made made me wonder whether there'll be any appetite for this kind of big scheme afterwards, and whether it might just
3: quietly kind of wither away. I can't see it withering away. I mean, uh, especially from, from my vantage point here in the Gulf. Um, one thing that makes the BRI so attractive is that it lines up with what a lot of states are trying to do, you know, so if you've been watching, um, well, I, I, it's not just the Gulf, I think, a lot of countries in Africa as well have the same McKinsey vision development programs in place. And those line up really, really well with what uh, the BRI is about, you know, chance, uh, looking to diversify economies and um, get off, especially in the Gulf, this kind of single resource model that a lot of countries are dependent on by doing things like investment infrastructure and um and and developing tourism and hospitality sectors, and and building smart cities, and the digital Silk Road kind of fits in with a lot of this stuff. So I don't think you'll see, especially in in this region, countries trying to back away from it. I think what they'll probably try to build in some kind of a a safety feature so they're not quite as exposed. and I think that's true in a lot of other places around. Uh, you know, like if you look at South Asia, for example, a lot of the Chinese investment through BRI isn't coming through other states or other uh, lending organizations. You know, uh, who else is going to go into Pakistan with you know something like six billion dollars worth of commitments? Um, we might see you know uh, maybe more appetite for this blue dot network that the U.S. is trying to promote, but uh, I think. Th- uh, I, I don't anticipate seeing the BRI really, you know, fading from the scene. I think probably people, a lot of states are going to try to to uh, protect themselves against an over-reliance on, on one source. But uh, that's good for everyone, I think, to see a, a more varied, uh, uh, a more diversified approach.
0: Now, they may say they want to do that. And this is something that's very topical in Africa today, where they're saying, okay, we don't, We've, we've exposed our dependency on China, so therefore we have to reduce that dependency. Let's start trading with each other more. But the reality is, is that intra-Africa trade accounts for only 16% of African trade. China is their largest trade partner. And the reality is, is that you simply can't replace China in the supply chain. It's scale, the price, all of it. So people may say we want to diversify our sourcing, our products, our markets, but let's be honest here. The United States isn't going to come up with a vast amount of money to rival what the Chinese are doing. Certainly the the British will not, now that they're independent, and the Europeans aren't really going to be spending. So as you indicated, there really isn't much of an alternative. I, th- I find it rather comical that you even brought up the Blue Dot Network because – and for those of you not familiar with the Blue Dot Network, it is – it was announced as America's kind of alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative, minus the four or five hundred billion dollars. <laughs> That's the best way to kind of explain it, you know. But so, so, you know, what what choice do people have really at the end of the day in terms of protecting themselves? I mean, how can they, uh, in, in very practical terms?
3: I like that you, you know, it is for comedic effect, I think, because really, what I've seen from the blue dot, I've been tracking it since it was announced, and I really just don't see much. The idea that that this market-based solution can compete with China's state-driven uh, investment program. I just don't see how how uh, that offers any kind of an alternative, really. Um, you know, I, I think really the BRI is obviously, in in uh, hard times right now, as is all of China, but I mean everywhere. I mean, just before we came on, I was looking at Twitter and all these pictures of uh, the Colosseum in Rome or the the Pompeii, and there's nobody there. So I think really, um, one of you guys mentioned in the intro that we're all just kind of stuck patiently waiting to see what happens. I think that's true everywhere in the world, and I imagine what will happen is is when the BRI comes back online, when the rest of the global economy does, we're going to see. Um, you know, things kind of go back to how they, how they were going before. I mean, I kind of have the sense right now that we're just in the absence of information. We're all just kind of, uh, almost panicking, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know much about how, how these virus have pandemics work. I know that here in the UAE, I'm off work for the next two weeks. And then the following two weeks, we're going to online teaching. Uh, my kids are home from school for a month. Malls are empty. The roads are empty. Um, it's a very, very strange time.
1: Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Jonathan,
2: do you have an an uh, an impression at the moment of what what governments are learning from this crisis you know obviously it it's it struck me that it's almost it almost functions like a kind of a stress test for international capitalism and is you know and as such there's just weaknesses are showing up everywhere. You know, it's just, just the supply chains are vulnerable. Uh, you know, the, the the countries are overly dependent on one source or one one market. Um, what you know? Do Do you think there are kind of actionable lessons that that is that they're able to take from this in order to to avoid a similar crisis in the future?
3: I don't know. I mean, what do, do you think? So, because right now, what I see, you know, from my vantage point here in the Emirates, is that everything just seems to have come to a stop. And um, talking with some some Emirati friends who are kind of senior officials, they say, "Well, this is a good thing that we've been able to uh, to, to to take fast action to try to contain this thing." Um, but the economic hits—I mean, I, I just don't. As a stress test, I guess it's a good it's a good indicator of just how how leveraged everybody is. Um, you know, again, going back to the, the the World Expo in Dubai later this year. Um, There's so much construction involved with this, and and a lot of it's being done by Chinese firms. And uh, you have to think that this is this is kind of slowing down quite a bit, and it it could really, really, really damage Dubai at a point where the economy's already been incredibly weak. So um, I don't know what the lesson is, other than to try to, you know, be better at everything all at once and and try to diversify. you know, uh, just in, in every step of the way, this, this over-reliance on, on China has become, I think, a very big part of what Middle Eastern countries are doing. Um, there's a sense that the US or, or Europe is, is less relevant or maybe less committed, so, so China may be the future. I think what this has indicated is that there's a need for a, a bigger uh, pool of, of uh, capital and investors and companies to work with.
0: You know, Cobus, it's interesting because when we look at the lessons learned, I think if we asked that question two or three weeks ago, we might have had a different answer than we had today. And so two or three weeks ago, China uh, was definitely taking it on the chin in the sense that infections were up, deaths were up, and it really looked like China had uh, not been able to bring this under control. And certainly in in the U.S. and Europe, people were pointing fingers at China's authoritarian methods for how they handled it. And, and there was this kind of like, you know, this is your problem. This is we're not going to have to deal with this. Today, we're looking at basically the, the you know, the Trump administration uh, being completely schizophrenic, whereas the president saying one thing and the Center for Disease Control is saying another. They don't have testing kits. The testing kits they did have were broken and now they're out there. There's only 6000 testing kits in the United States for a population of 330 million uh, and it really looks chaotic. Uh, Italy is now a quarter under quarantine. Uh, so Europe is now starting to feel that it's got y- a little bit of the chaos coming its way. And it's interesting because some of the criticism that we heard towards the Chinese a couple weeks ago has died down as now policymakers and, and, and officials in the West are struggling to contain this in their own backyards. And so I guess I'm wondering, Cobus, what you think of the optics of all of this where we look at, you know, they look at China and they go, hey, you know, it was tough, it was rough, it was brutal sometimes, but they brought it under control. And if you're a country like Zimbabwe or Kenya or Nigeria or even South Africa, where order is sometimes hard to come by, and you see what's happening in the United States, again, not on the same, they're not comparable at this point, but there's a certain degree of chaos in the US response. How do you think those optics look, Kobus
2: yeah, you know, I, I think in a way it's it's like that old um, that old twist. It's line of every every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, you know, every you know this this crisis exposes a lot in each each country. It exposes different weaknesses in each country, and I think you know one of the weaknesses it exposed in China is a, a, a centralized government's tendency to not want to communicate bad news you know so so the the Xi Jinping administration has been has been hit by a lot of anger I think in China about about not coming forward with information about the pandemic quickly enough and um, but at the same time, you then see all of these other weaknesses being exposed in other countries. And in Africa, particularly, the, that weakness is frequently a kind of a breakdown in trust between the population and the government, um, you know, so which leads to just lots and lots of rumours, you know, rumours that people people are, have been, uh, have bribed, like sick people have bribed their way into the country, for example. Um, what I, you know, kind of what I kind of start wondering is, is you know, I, I think it also exposes the the limits of uh, of national governments to be able to deal with this kind of global global crisis. Um, and Jonathan, I guess um, my my question to you is: Do you foresee any kind of more more robust kind of global kind of governance architectures coming out of a crisis like this? Maybe not this crisis particularly. But you know, the, it, like as we face more and more of these kind of cross-border crises, um, will we be forced to to say have a group that looks like the G twenty, but that has much more implement, implement you know implementation power to actually do something to pull together responses to these kind of crises?
3: Well, I would like to think that, but but the uh, I, I don't know the I guess realist in me doesn't see that happening. Really, um, you, you mentioned. The issue of governance, and I guess that's something I think about a lot lately, is how China's, um, you know, the CCP was reluctant to really uh, share information in a timely manner. Of course, we all saw that FT report about the Wuhan banquet and how this still went ahead, and even though officials knew what was going on. And I think what we're seeing, especially in the Middle East, is a lot of people wondering, you know, what what's the government sharing with them? You know, and and I think there's an inherent lack of trust there that. You know, and well, I mean, here in the UAE, uh, uh, the last time I checked, there was something like 30 cases reported, um, but everything's come to a standstill. And in the rumor mill is, of course, well, maybe there's more than this. Maybe we don't have enough information. We don't know what's going on. So, in this environment, I think um, at a at a nation state level, as you indicate, there's there's kind of an inherent um, distrust in a lot of regimes um, between sharing information in a timely fashion, and, and given. As Eric was pointing out, the, the, the strange situation in the U.S. Um, under the current administration, um, information is not really forthcoming there as well. So, I mean, who would lead this effort? Right now, it seems we're kind of in this um, kind of 19th century scenario where every state for itself, and I don't really see who is kind of stepping up to take a leadership role and try to coordinate efforts. It seems to be kind of a random random haphazard.
0: It's interesting you bring up the concept of the 19th century state of, po- of politics in that sense that almost this real politic is coming back into it. Uh, internationalism and multilateralism appears to be fading in some senses. Obviously, there's a lot more unilateralism coming out of the United States and, and other populist-led governments. Uh, the Chinese themselves are oftentimes unilateralist as well. So with that in mind, looking at, at, at the, the chess pieces on the board, Are there opportunities here for countries like the United States and in Europe and even Japan to take advantage of the situation? Because a lot of them over the years have not had a good response to the Belt and Road. They've not been able to come up with compelling talking points to talk to African, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean governments about why this is not a good thing. Now they actually do. Going back to Kobus's connectivity issue. Connectivity is good if it doesn't kill you. And here we have a situation where where it is literally a talking point for them to say, look what your relationship with China has brought you. Pain, misery, and death. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, that's exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, Americans are prone to a little bit of drama. But my point here is that do you see in a very kind of Metternich type of way, a very, you know, 19th century type of style that that people can take advantage of the Chinese while they're distracted with battling this this virus at home and while there's distrust rising in many parts of the world over their relationship with China?
3: Well, the first thing is, you know, if I do my next BRI article, I think I'll have that as the subtitle, Connectivity's Good Unless It Kills You. That's that's <laughs> perfect. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because watching how how the response to the BRI over the past few years, like so, it seemed from basically 2013 until the first Belt and Road Forum in 2017, China really had a free pass like it didn't seem like too many Western countries really were taking it very seriously it's got a funny name and it just seemed nobody really understood it very carefully and it, after 2017 we started seeing all of this this debt trap narrative and and uh, you know these warnings about um, um, you know Chinese uh, environmental standards or lax labor practices or things like this and we start to see a lot of pushback and as you in- indicated in the intro in the the last forum last year, I guess in in April or May of 2019, was kind of China's chance to say, okay, we've heard what you guys said about this, and we're kind of of rebooting the Belt Road uh, 2.0. Now, I see that a lot here, where especially American officials or European officials are are kind of warning um, the Emirates or other Gulf states to say, look, you don't understand China the way we do. You don't want to get involved with things like uh, their 5G, their security risks, or you know, uh, you don't understand the, uh, the the implications of these relationships. But you know, I was talking with an Emirati uh, friend um, not long ago, a journalist, and he's like, "Yeah, we know what we're getting into here. We're not naive. We're we're not unaware. But what do you have to compete with? You know, what do you offer instead of you know Huawei five G? Do you have something better?" Um, so, I think everybody's kind of going into this with wide, eyes wide open, and there is certainly a space for a lot of countries to try to wedge between you know, uh, certain countries with China on BRI projects. But again, like, what, what do you have to compete with? What, what, what do you offer in its place? I mean, we're, we both seem to think Blue Dot isn't the answer, so, so again, you know, what are you going to bring to the table instead? Jonathan, how how do you see Xi
2: Jinping's personal kind of stature as a leader affected by this? You know, uh, you know, maybe not not specifically, you know, only within China, but but also, uh, you know, his stature as an international leader.
3: Yeah, this is going to be very interesting to to watch because so much of, as, as we all know, I mean, China for the past several years has has been. Really intensely connected to the personal leadership qualities of, of Xi Jinping, and um, a lot of the 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 idea of of his uh, leadership has to be coming under question right now. I mean, I I haven't been to China for a couple of months. Um, when I was there last, I guess last fall, um, there still seemed to be a lot of enthusiasm based around the direction he's taking things, and at least in a in a public way. Um, Right now, I mean, when I go on my Twitter feed, I see a lot of stories about how, um, you know, he is he is uh, leading China through this terrible situation. But you have to think people are looking at it and and and, and really wondering. Again, the performance legitimacy has been one of the driving pillars of, of the CCP's leadership since the reform era, and um, with with the way things have been operating under under this crisis. Um, that really has to call it into question. I mean, I, I would expect he's under a lot of pressure right now, uh, domestically and internationally. Well, I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of countries have very realistic ideas of how China works. I don't think anybody really, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the narrative about of the CCP's leadership is for a domestic audience really. So I don't think anybody here has any kind of. Uh, Um,
0: Yeah, they're just more interested in the money, I think, uh, and the development and rather than the the ideology of of Xi Jinping or the CCP. Because I mean, at home in China, it seems like the propaganda machine has just cranked it up to overdrive now, because they do recognize that there's some cracks in the system. and, And my suspicion is that they're going to crack down even harder on people that if you dare to criticize the president today or the party today, you will be handled with very quickly much faster than you were even before this crisis because they can't afford to have that spread that doubt about Xi Jinping spread because that's all they've got now they've built him up and it's if it's not him then it's nothing it seems like an all or nothing type of uh, of game that they're in right now what, what, i was talking to a scholar the other week um and he said that he really expects that China's interest in the world will will fall in, in, you know, in the immediate aftermath of, of this crisis, whenever that is, because the demands domestically to rebuild are going to be huge. So there's been so much domestic economic destruction as a result of this, just getting the factories back up, getting the auto industry back up again. I mean, all of that is going to take all of the capacity of the government to focus on getting the, the domestic economy going up. And he doesn't think that the, they're going to be as interested in places like Africa, the Middle East, South America for a while. Until their economies back up again, what's your thought on that? Uh, on that scenario in the aftermath of COVID nineteen, whenever that may be.
3: Well, that's a scary scenario because a lot of places are, are are just really dependent, you know, on on like I was saying. The looking around the Gulf, the the amount of reliance on Chinese trade or Chinese investment is, is really fundamental to a lot of uh, states here, and I think that's true of, of a lot of places in Africa and South Asia and across Eurasia, really. Um, i suspect what you're saying about china is true of a lot of other places though too i mean a, a lot of other countries are are, are being hammered uh, economically right now and they're probably going to have to to uh focus inward for a bit as well just to uh to get past this um
2: what do you think the 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 kind of ec- this kind of level of economic stress is going to do to um to politics within within the gulf region and within the, the middle east, the larger Middle east
3: yeah so in the Gulf in the larger Middle East—that's that's pretty interesting because um, you kind of have a similar legitimacy model that you that you see in China, especially in the Gulf. You know where um, these are um, traditional monarchies um, without a lot of uh, participation, and there's quite a lot of pressure. I mean, again, coming back to these vision programs, um, each of these states are under a lot of uh, pressure to diversify their economies to 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 create kind of uh, to move beyond the single resource rentier model. And you see in in some places like uh, say Kuwait, Qatar and the UAE, where they have relatively small populations and a lot of energy exports and a lot of revenue, uh, they can kind of continue like this for the foreseeable future. But then you look at places like Bahrain and Oman and and Saudi, um, where there's just a tremendous pressure. Uh, They've got very young populations. Um, The economies aren't performing very well. Uh, unemployment is really high. And, uh, you know, this definitely would would cause some problems uh, for the government, because if they can't deliver, uh, you might see something like, uh, you know, what we're seeing in other places like Algeria or Sudan, where where people start to uh, uh, push back a little. I don't think it would be anything as dramatic as, say, uh, revolutions or Protests, but I think what you would see is just a tremendous uh, pressure from from the uh, from the inside that doesn't always get noticed very well uh, from outside these states. But um, they're actually quite responsive. You know, people here. This is an it- interesting for me as a political scientist. You know, coming from Canada, is we kind of look at at uh, democratic values and norms as, as a way to address issues of governance, but. You see this a lot, where people actually have direct access to their leaders. You know, I have a student who missed a class one day because he's going to go talk to the sheikh about uh, a property issue that his family was going through, and it it blew me away that a 22-year-old guy could just go and meet with the sheikh. You know, Um, so it's a much more direct uh, line to the government, and uh, that means that you know the government's hearing very carefully or very closely what what people are grumbling about. So. yeah, I think there will be quite a lot of pressure here if if things don't get turned around.
0: Jonathan Fulton is an assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, uh, also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and an expert on BRI. Quick question for you before we go. You've written this book coming out this year on BRI, uh, and then you have another one coming out next year on it. And uh, in terms of China-Middle East relations, are any of the events that have been unfolding Uh, related to COVID-19 and what we've seen over the past few months going to change your books or potentially date some of your uh, the the topics in your books?
3: I don't think so. The one that's coming out next is called Regions in the Belt and Road Initiative. And this was actually an edited book. So I had a lot of contributors uh, who are area specialists looking at, you know, South Asia, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, the Horn of Africa, Europe, and I did the Middle East. Um, and I think we're, we're looking more at kind of the big themes of what is it that, that uh, states within these regions are, are doing in the relationship with China. So it's not really what China's doing so much as how are these places responding to China's outreach and, and how does that affect uh, these regional dynamics? Because especially in the Gulf, you know, when China comes in here um, in a big way, there's a lot of um, regional dynamics that, that China doesn't have a lot of experience with you know, this rivalry between Saudi and Iran or, or intra-GCC rivalries. Um, so it's kind of like a pretty delicate ecosystem that that a foreign state is entering and, and what's the result of that? So COVID doesn't really shift that too much, you know? Um, the Middle East book, the, the Routledge Handbook on China-Middle East Relations, yeah, you know, I got the contract for that book before um, we even heard of COVID, about a month beforehand. And uh, you're right, that's something that we should try to address is, uh, you know, how does this um, exposure to, to China affect uh, markets, economies, politics within these states? Because because we're learning kind of in real time that it's uh, this, this kind of exposure to China can, can be a good thing for their economies and can also be a pretty
0: devastating thing. Very interesting. And I know you're very active on Twitter. Uh, what's the best way for people to follow you? What's your Twitter handle?
3: So I'm Jonathan D. Fulton. Somebody was faster than me by about a month and got the, the Jonathan Fulton handle. So I had to bring into the, the middle initial. But, but yeah, I'm always on Twitter pretty much every day, tracking China, Middle East stuff.
0: Great. Well, we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time and good luck with the two books coming out. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And thanks for having me on. I really uh, love the podcast. Kopus, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the headline of today's newsletter that we send out to our subscribers uh, is things just got worse. And I have a feeling that we're going to be writing that headline or some variation of it uh, every week now for the foreseeable future. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, and, and I don't feel, and I, maybe I'm misreading this, I don't feel that at least African media and policymakers are taking this as seriously as they should. Uh, For the most part, when I look at most of the African legitimate African media, Daily Nation, Daily Maverick, uh, Premium Times, the the economic implications of COVID-19 are one story among many dramas going on. And I just don't feel that the severity of the situation, that the the wrecking ball that is coming their way, is quite yet a top-of-mind priority. And what I mean by the wrecking ball is again as jonathan pointed out when you've established a trading relationship that is so dependent on one country and that country stops trading with you what happens i you know i just i just don't have an answer for what's going to what's going to happen in the next 3 to 4 to 5 weeks for countries that have no financial cushion whatsoever to withstand a disruption the likes of what we what's coming and he talked about in the Middle East and in the UAE, nobody's going to malls, nobody's on the streets, people aren't going to schools. Here in Southeast Asia, my son has been out of school now for six weeks, uh, you know, home learning. People aren't going to the movies. Economic activity is slowing radically, and oil is now piling up in the ports or the, in uh, in Nigeria and Angola, and so one of the other mainline kind of ideas that I'm trying to develop in the newsletter is that this is evolving from a health crisis to an economic crisis, and we are now in the economic crisis stage. It will eventually move to a governance crisis, as we're starting to see, and you've touched on this, and then it's going to go to a political crisis. That's the the trajectory of where I see this going in weeks, not in months, but in weeks
2: you know i agree with you that that african um media is probably not freaking out as much as they should you know it's it's going to be very interesting to see how the 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 current oil crisis particularly you know plays out over the next few days in nigeria because i think that's probably going to be one of the places where um you know kind of where the this kind of health crisis into economic crisis into political crisis that you, you know i think the the fact that that nigeria is also in the middle of of having its main commodity essentially lose much of its value um that's going to be ground zero quite quite possibly for for that that development um so i think it's really going to be very important to to keep an eye on them um and then you know there's not much more one can do one kind of like hold on tight and, and see what happens
0: Well, so Nigeria is an interesting case study. So in February, the central bank uh, spent $1.64 billion out of its 40 or so billion dollars of foreign exchange reserves in order to maximize liquidity and to maintain liquidity in the economy. Because what's ending up happening is there's just not enough cash coming into the economy. And that then forces up prices and inflation. So central banks across the continent who can't sell their commodities for hard currency... Are going to start running into very serious liquidity problems. And this has nothing to do with the debt or anything else in that sense. So then you have the Eurobond holders. And this is a very important part of this discussion because on the Chinese debt side of this, renegotiations can happen. With the Eurobond holders, there is no rene- renegotiating. So as less hard currency comes into the economy because prices are lower for the commodities that they sell, there's less money then to pay back. Eurobond holders and to provide social services and to provide debt maintenance and to do all the things that governments need to do. So, I mean, I, maybe I'm too close to this story because I sit, you know, for eight, nine hours a day putting this newsletter together and just read, Henny, Penny, the sky is falling." And so I fully admit that I might be a little alarmist here. <laughs> That's possible. I don't think I am because of the the nature of what we're talking about. When store shelves are running out, you can't sell commodities. Investments drying up. People and aviation and transportation are stopped. Uh, I don't know what that world looks like in a month. Yeah,
2: you know what I would love, like to hear more analysis about is what this, what the impact of all of this is on global warming. Um, you know, kind of, I, I saw satellite pictures um, over China of. You know, of of January, or um, well, actually uh, J- January last year, and then January this year, um, and you know the the amount of smog is has more than halved. You know, kind of it's it's so so it, it's it'll be very interesting to see what the kind of impact of all of these interrupted flights and then the block in shipping and you know the the, the drop in oil sales and so on. You know, one of the things that I'm wondering is whether it. All of this is going to force everyone to to you know to, to start looking at at alternative methods of, say, electricity generation much quicker, you know, kind because what we're now seeing is not only, that these are these are very vulnerable to global warming but they're all very vulnerable to a lot of other factors as well that people have been, haven't been factoring in you know so any kind of risk analysis from now on is going to have to take into account the possibility of this kind of global outbreak you know because i think i think you know as as a lot of people have been have been pointing out that this is only the start right kind of like the, the, this isn't an isolated event there's this kind of thing is going to be the new normal i think um and so kind of local mitigation, like local microgrids, solar, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, might well be this weird kind of, you know, kind of silver lining kind of positive fallout from this crisis. Um, it's it's going to be I, my, my feeling is what, what we're going to be seeing is a lot of parts of societies, like large parts of societies that we hadn't thought of before hadn't hadn't kind of even considered would wouldn't you know um, before might have to face some form of reform you know some kind of change
0: in order to, to to mitigate these kinds of fallouts in the future that's a hopeful optimistic way of looking at it i'm not so sure that humans are that enlightened to do that i mean you get the sense that after this calms down wow we're out of it economic activity will pick back up again energy use will go back up again, pollution levels will go back up again, flights will go around, everything gets back to normal again. And then humans being what we are, we say, oh, okay, we dodge that bullet and then we go in and the next one comes and we don't always learn our lessons. And, but then it goes back to a little bit like what Jonathan was saying, is that if you're a country like Zambia or Botswana, you don't have an enormous amount of choice. I mean, what you're talking about requires a lot of money and investment. To wean yourself off of a carbon energy, which they don't even have enough carbon energy, much less than to install sufficient renewable energy. That's a multi year, maybe a decade long project, right? Yeah, no, definitely,
2: definitely. But I mean, what what I mean more is that that from now on, the the possibility that all of these global systems might have to be shut down in short order, that itself will have to be part of of large companies' risk analysis. You know, so so even I agree with you that it's going to be very difficult for for Benin to immediately switch to a, a different energy system. That of course is is, is a very tall order. But it, I, I mean more that that you know kind of future large scale. Planning for, you know, for, for large scale projects, or for just for trade and investment. It's not a situation where, where people can still now assume, oh, there'll be a billion flights per week, it'll be fine. You know, like, the, the, the fact that those might have to be shut down for, for a particular reason, will increasingly have to be factored in to, to thinking. So, so I mean more that, the, that the, the kind of way that we think about risk. Over over the next decade is going to change. I think um, you know, and 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 be because of because
0: of this crisis, this is exactly the type of discussion that we have every day going on in our newsletter. We've talked about our newsletter a lot, in part because these are the themes and the topics of discussion that are going on. And a lot of the folks who subscribe to our newsletter are academics, senior policymakers in Washington, think tanks, and. Uh, M- diplomats all over the world, NGO activists, United Nations folks, so we would love to have you join our community. If you're interested in subscribing, uh, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We have an academic discount for students and faculty, uh, 50% off, so we'd like to get you on board as well. Uh, let us know if you have any questions about it. You can email me directly at eric at chinaafricaproject.com or Cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. We love having discussions with you and answering any questions that you've got about the topics or the newsletter or anything that we're doing, uh, that would be great. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Cobus uh, and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for
1: listening the discussion continues online head over to facebook.com china africa project to share your thoughts on today's show the guys are also on twitter where you can find Bobas at Stadinsky or eric at eolander and be sure to sign up for the weekly china and africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com